good to see all of those who are here with us today in person, and thanks to all of those who are watching online. Thanks for connecting and being a part of uh, what's happening here. Uh, there really are a lot of good things that are happening. Yesterday, we uh, had our brown bag giveaway at Red. That's the outreach center, uh, and uh, it was it was phenomenal. Thank you to everybody who showed up and served uh, as we uh, are working to uh, help meet the needs of people in the Kyler Brownsville community, uh, specifically by providing food. And we had so many new families yesterday. It was really just a great opportunity uh, to be able to serve and connect. Thank you very much, kind sir. You guys give it up for Dylan. Not only does uh, he lead us in worship, but he makes a mean cup of joe. Uh, quite literally at Blue Door. So, uh, all right. Well, we are in a series uh, called Running with Giants. And last week I misspoke and told you that Kat was going to be sharing today out of the book of Esther. Uh, that is next week. So uh, read through the, the book of Esther this week and you will be prepared as she comes to bring the word next week. Uh, today I'm going to be uh, sharing with you guys. Uh, and uh, I want to just when we when we put together our series, uh, our goal is to kind of uh, to to help our, our content build on top of itself. Uh, and so we use the series format to kind of give some easy jumping in and jumping out kind of points when we're talking about information. But the truth is that a lot of what we uh, study throughout the year it, it has a has a has a constant building effect to it. And so we went through the book of Daniel uh, just before we started this. And then last week, uh, Jim McLean, one of our elders, brought us a teaching out of the book of Joel, which uh, commentators really are not 100% sure uh, when it was written, but its, its, its relevancy falls directly into the timeline of Daniel. And then today, uh, we're going to be looking at another prophet who was at work uh, actually shortly after Daniel, but specifically tied into the events that took place in the book of Daniel. So just for a, a recap of where we're at, God told the people how to live. God sent prophets to warn them when they weren't living right. And God even divided them into two nations to try to create some separation with their, with their warring ideologies. And none of this was enough to convince them that honoring God and living for God was the best way. And so uh, Israel and ultimately Israel and Judah would ignore the teachings and the instruction from God. And, and what, what, what do I mean when I say ignore it? It's not like that they ex every person exclusively said, I want nothing to do with the things of God. God is what our understanding is, and, and, and his own words is that he's a jealous God, right? Why is he a jealous God? Because he wants the affection of his children to be poured out and directed towards him. Why is that? Because that is the safest and best way for us, right? Rather than being led astray. And, and as we get a broader picture of the relationship with God, we're talking about eternal positioning, heaven and hell, walking in relationship with God, walking out of relationship with God. And so God, he's, he's adamant that, that we as his children need to serve him fully. And what they are guilty of is what, what, 
what I would just call is complacency and then ultimately conforming to the world around them. And God keeps coming back and saying, this isn't good, this doesn't work. And because they do this for so long, he ultimately sends them into exile, right? And so what, it, what happens is the people compromise the faith, the people adopt pagan practices, and the people don't speak up. These become the three major faults of the, the, the children of Israel, right? What are they doing? They compromise their faith. Yes, ultimately compromise leads to forgetting. And, and when we get into the book of Daniel, right, right before we get to Daniel, Josiah is king and they find the instructions, they find the, the, the written word, and they realize at that point that they have drifted so far away that they are not doing as God had instructed. They're not living up to their end of the covenant. And so they've compromised the faith. And in the midst of that, they have, the people have adopted pagan practices. This is, these are practices that are contrary to the word of God and are also a part of other belief systems. And, and so they begin to, to, to be less and less distinguishable from those that worship other gods. And then the people that acknowledge these things and they see this happening, they don't speak up. They don't use their voice. They don't want to be a part of the conflict. They don't want to be a part of the fight. They go, well, you know, to each his own, let each person do their own thing. And so they don't speak up and they don't use their voice. And ultimately, like I said, they end up in exile and this is going to take them to Babylon. And I just want to kind of give some perspective on how I use the word compromise. Compromise is uh, is doing in a manner other than instructed, right? So when we talk, when I'm talking about compromise, I'm talking about doing something in a manner other than the way that you're instructed to do it. And so this is, this is the thing for God. God says, here are some specific details on how you are to carry yourself, how you are to interact with people around you, what uh, marriage is to look like, what relationships are to look like. And you have groups of people who begin to say, well, I don't know that I agree with that. That's compromise, especially when we're looking at the Old Testament. But I would say that it even bleeds into the world today. In fact, today, uh, we're going to realize that the, that, that the cost of compromise equals exile. And it is the same for us today. That if we are not careful that the cost of compromise in our faith and in the world around us has a consequence. And does it look like exile in the sense of being carried off to Babylon? Well, I will tell you this, that it doesn't look the same with every generation. The consequences don't. God raises up different leaders to bring different consequences, and he doesn't do that because he is hateful. He does that because he is loving and he is fighting for his children to be brought back into a proper way of living. And today we're going to be looking at the book of Ezra. This is a, uh, a very short 10 chapters, not, not a long read. I'm excited to be able to teach on it today because this is also the name of uh, our fourth child, our youngest, uh, who uh, uh, his name Ezra means helper, right? Uh, God's helper. And so Ezra has been with us for eight years, and he's laying down right here on the front row right now, uh, definitely hiding at this point underneath his uh, uh, hoodie. Uh, but 
But this for me was important. I wanted to do this study and teach today because I wanted to better understand uh, who the prophet Ezra was. Uh, And so Ezra is a scribe. That is his primary function. In fact, uh, most scholars uh, attribute the majority of what we have as the Old Testament to this point being compiled and formatted by Ezra. And if you think about this for a moment, like at this point, being a scribe was very, very different than being a scribe in the New Testament. Ezra has a purpose. Ezra has a task that is in front of him, and Ezra is doing the work of God. When you get to the New Testament, the scribes have become corrupted in many ways, and and they themselves need a revival in their own heart. And so if you read about a scribe in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, you see that the scribes in the New Testament are kind of lumped into the same uh, concept of the the Pharisees, right? Uh, They're not seen as the, the friends of the faith. They're seen as the enemies of the faith, right? There's a negativity to it. But when we are looking here in the Old Testament, there's something that's tremendously positive about it. There is a lot of work to be done. Now, Uh, Ezra is uh, two books separated by 80 years. So there's 10 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6 are one book that most likely, honestly, Ezra did not write. He compiled them into a book because they were events that directly affected chapters 7 through 10, which he probably did write. Remember that the purpose of the scribe was not to write original uh, content, but instead it was to copy the content that God had already given. So this should not surprise us that when we are looking at the book of Ezra, that Ezra is is not uh, necessarily uh, uh, the the one who penned all of it. Uh, In fact, Ezra probably wrote a good chunk of 2 Chronicles uh, in completing the historical narrative that was there. And and we really see a a pickup from Chronicles directly into some of the content that we find here. So you have two separate writings divided by 80 years. And so I'm going to try to cover these 10 chapters as quickly as I can, but I want to make sure I touch on some specific verses because there's a lot of really powerful things happening here. We'll begin in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. This is always a good place. Uh, It's always good when the writer connects us to history, right? It says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So what's going on? Cyrus is king. Remember when we were going through the book of Daniel? This is happening at the end of Daniel's life, right? This is is a period of time where Daniel is still receiving visions from God. There's still a prophetic purpose in Daniel's life. But Cyrus is king. We have moved out of Babylonian uh, rule. Uh, you, you have the, the dream that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, and then you have the, the dream that Daniel had, and that was the, that the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar's rule, would come to an end, and not a successor that would come in and, and maintain the kingdom, but instead there would be an entirely new kingdom that would come and rule. And so who, who was Cyrus? Cyrus was the 
one that united the Medes and the Persians. And if you'll remember in the, in the image of the statue, it had two arms. And this was the picture of two kingdoms that were united. Uh, the two tribes of what is modern day Iran uh, were the two tribes, the Medes and the Persians, and they were united together. And Cyrus rules very different from Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus desires the favor of the gods. He wants the favor of the gods, and he is not 100% convinced that any particular god is the ultimate god. Now, he does have a favorite, and I'll talk about it in just a moment, but he wants to make sure that any gods that exist and are out there are looking down favorably upon him. Uh, this right here is an image of what is known as the uh, Edict of Cyrus. And this is actually a replica of it. The uh, original that was found is held in a museum in England. This replica is actually in the United Nations. In fact, Iran presented this copy to the United Nations in 1941. Uh, so I want to talk about this for a moment. Uh, this is an edict that uh, Cyrus put out, and there are a number of lines to it that have been translated, and I want to read a few of these with you. Uh, line 32, Cyrus's words here, I returned the images of the gods who had resided there, uh, note uh, to their places, and I let them dwell in eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned to them their dwellings, line 33. In addition, at the command of Marduk, the great Lord, I settled in their uh, habitations in pleasing abodes, the gods of Sumer and Akkad, who uh, Nabonidus, to the anger of the Lord of the gods, had brought into Babylon. Then it moves into a prayer of Cyrus's, May all the gods whom I settled in their sacred centers ask daily of Baal and Nebu that my days be long and they, may they intercede for my welfare. May they say to Marduk, my Lord, as for Cyrus the king who reveres you and Cambyses his son. So Cambyses his son will ultimately take over for Cyrus. That will, He will inherit the kingdom. But what we get in this little uh, sphere that we found is a, an inscription, an edict that came from Cyrus about releasing those that had been brought into captivity during the rule and reign of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to go back to their kingdoms and reestablish their practices of worship, the ways of their gods. And he makes it known here that what he is wanting is he is wanting to make sure that the gods look favorably upon him and his descendants, and specifically, he wants Marduk to be able to look down and see that he is willing to allow these other gods to have their rule and their dominion. Now, this creates some debate around Ezra. Some will say, well, look, this is proof that what Ezra wrote uh, is, is true, right? It tethers it to, uh, uh, to be a historical reality, while others would say, no, it doesn't do that because the only gods that are mentioned by Cyrus are Mesopotamian gods. He doesn't specifically actually speak of any other gods in this edict. And, and I think that both of these are, 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 are fair places to begin a, a conversation. I think, yes, it is a, a, 
a good point for us to be able to tether it to history, but I do think it's worth noting that Cyrus did not see some significance in the Jewish God, right? And that would not have been Cyrus's point, right? God stirred his spirit because God was at work, right? So what we know is Cyrus focuses on Marduk, and this is a reality of his reign. It is seen right here in his own writing. Now, I want to back up to around 900 BC, so we're moving from 500 BC to 900 BC, and we have a woman named Jezebel who has come into Israel, right? She is the bride of King Ahab, and she is the daughter of a priest who has become a king in the land of Tyre, and they worship Baal, B-A-A-L. And that is how the word of God kind of communicates it to us. And she brings the prophets of Baal into Israel. And when she does this, in order for the prophets of Baal to be able to do their thing, she has to run off the prophets of God. And so you have either the prophets being murdered or they are in hiding except for one. His name is Elijah. He is filled with boldness. And not only does he not go into hiding, but he's even willing to go into the throne room and speak directly to King Ahab. Like he's not going to be bullied around. And, and, and so you have this, this God being uh, worshipped here during this time that Elijah is prophet. And remember in the story that Elijah makes a prophecy And what is that prophetic word? He says, it will not rain. That's significant in what I'm about to do to connect some dots for you and just show you the work of the enemy throughout time. But it will not rain. And when the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel are embarrassed because their God does not show up, Elijah takes the sacrifice, right? He drenches it in water. The fire comes. Not only does it consume the sacrifice, but it licks up all the water as well. And the prophets of Baal are, are killed, right? And then they are driven out. The idea of worshiping Baal now is an idea of the enemy. And the children of Israel are emboldened by this and they push out. And this makes Jezebel infuriated. But what does Elijah do? He prophesies that now that God has been seen to be the one true God and Baal has been seen to not be, rain will come, right? And what do they see? They see a storm brewing off in the distance. I'm just really condensing this down. Go back and read the story uh, if you want some more context on that. But Baal is seen as being the God of the storm. So when Elijah is prophesying that it will not rain, he is specifically calling out Baal. And he is saying that this is, this is what your God is about. He is about rain. He is about the life that is given to the land. Well, I want to tell you that as long as he's in charge, you won't have any rain because there's one true living God. Now, fast forward to Marduk, and Marduk was initially seen as the God of thunderstorms. As we have begun to unearth all of this, uh, you know, pieces of history and these different cylinders and, and the different writings, what we find is that he was seen as the god of thunderstorms and ultimately kind of rose into the place of being their ultimate deity. In fact, the very Baal that Jezebel brings into Israel is Marduk. 
And in the scripture, Bel has another name. In the Old Testament, it uses Moloch as a variant of Bel. And, and what I want to connect for you is that you move from 900 B.C. to 500 B.C. and you have the same ideological worshiping of pagans to a specific deity that I cannot explain to you why today we have an edict sitting in the United Nations that specifically pays homage to that God. And if you go and you just do a cursory search and look up Marduk or Moloch in pop culture, what you will find is that that name continues to pop up as a position of influence even in the United States of America today. I'm not trying to create some conspiracy theory for you in your mind that Moloch has some type of great power. What I'm saying is that it is probably no mistake on the enemy's part that his identity is consistent for thousands of years. And just as Elijah on the mountaintop that day said, maybe your God is in the restroom, maybe he is busy, that same is for today. That just because it shows up in pop culture and just because we may put up a statue or a monument or even an edict in the center of the United Nations, it does not give it any more credence or power than it had then. And as Christians, we believe that God sits on the throne. And so, yes, we see these names showing up in today's culture. And I think that it should be something that helps connect us. This is why Jesus said that the Old Testament writings were to be known. This is why the New Testament authors in general, they constantly said, you need to know the Old Testament. We cannot run from it. We cannot ignore it. We need to know it because when these things show up in culture, we need to be able to go and connect the dots and be able to see the work of the enemy, the hand of the enemy moving among us. And I'll remind you of this if you're sitting here going, oh, what does this really matter? Paul said that our wrestle is not with flesh and blood. So you cannot connect some, some name in pop culture to just being false and writing it off as being nothing, right? You can't make that connection and still believe that there's something happening in the spiritual realm. If there is a wrestling happening, if there is a war that is happening, do you not think that the work of the enemy has any manifestation? Do you not think that it manifests in the hearts of those that would serve the enemy? Absolutely. So we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities. And this is exactly what Daniel was connecting with. Daniel, when he, when he was meeting with Gabriel, right? He, the, the angel told him, said that there is the prince of Persia that I warred with to get here. And there are other principalities that are coming behind the prince of Persia. And Paul says, this is our fight. There is some type of spiritual dominion that is attempting to stop the move of God. And so just as much as it is essential to the faith to believe that Jesus died on the cross and he is resurrected and soon returning, it is also essential to the faith to understand that there is an enemy at work seeking to destroy. And Jesus says this throughout his ministry. And we can't forget this. 
Now, look here in Ezra 1. I just want to point this out, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, right? He uses this language to help remind us that, that there's, no, there's no advocating that Cyrus is a godly king, right? Listen, God uses whoever he pleases to fulfill his will. And just because somebody is used of God to fulfill the will of God does not make them righteous. Can I tell you, a wicked person is still wicked. And just because we see something happening that we're like, whoa, that, that has prophetic meaning. Or man, I see God moving in the midst of this. God said this was going to happen and it's happening. It does not mean that those people who are engaged in the process are necessarily walking in relationship with God. God will stir the hearts of leaders. He will stir the hearts of men and women to fulfill his promises. And so don't be surprised when wicked people do things that seem to honor the kingdom of heaven somehow. And let me tell you that my concern for us is that when we see wickedness somehow being used by God, that we will attribute holiness to that wickedness, and then our faith will become compromised, right? And this is why we have the word of God, so that we can understand that the reason Cyrus was doing this was not because Cyrus was walking in right relationship with God, but he was doing this because the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah was being fulfilled because God's promises are yes and amen, right? Look here at verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the heaven, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Ezra writes, thus says Cyrus. This helps us to be able to connect to the historical perspective, right? Also, listen to this. By saying, thus says Cyrus, what Ezra is not saying is that God said, to Cyrus, go do this. These were Cyrus's words. They fulfilled God's purpose, but they were still Cyrus's words. They were not God's words. And I, 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 there's an understanding that, that Ezra has and the prophets have at this time as things are beginning to be restored, right? That God is at work and he is using those who he would use. Now, remember that uh, when you have them going into exile, right? They're going into exile. The prophets are upset about this, right? There's this mindset that's like, God, why can't you just deal with sin? And, and God's like, hey, I'm going to deal with sin and I'm going to use the Babylonians. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have them do it. And, and this idea is the Babylonians are even worse And God says, yeah, because I'll use whoever I want to use for my purpose and my will for your benefit. And and that's exactly what we see happening here. So what was Cyrus doing? Cyrus was just checking boxes. And history confirms this. And that edict, that cylinder that sits in the United Nations right now is a symbol of what it looks like to check the boxes to appease a God. And then to play it safe by saying, well, okay, if, if this is the real God, I want to make sure that, that you also are happy with me. 
Verse 3, I promise I'm not going to go through all 10 chapters verse by verse. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now remember Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in uh, on the second time to take in uh, uh and exile the children of Israel. They destroyed the temple, right? So it's been demolished. And Ezra now is beginning to put together a a group of people. He's getting the word out, right, for them to go and to do what? To rebuild the temple. And I want to point something out in this. Verse 4, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides uh, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this is it. He says, we've got permission to go and to rebuild the temple, right? We can rebuild this position for the place of sacrifice. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to rebuild the altar, right? Because there's a blood sacrifice that has to be made for the atonement of sin. They understand this. So there is, there is sin that needs to be atoned for. This is, uh, this is why even today, like we'll do communion, right? And we do this because we understand this is to remind us that there had to be a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Now, the beautiful part is that God came in the flesh and made that final uh, sacrifice so that we don't have to keep going back to the temple. We became the temple, right? The Holy Ghost now resides inside of us. That blood sacrifice is no longer needed. Instead, it's the sacrifice of our lives. It's a living sacrifice instead of a dying sacrifice. But there's a cost that comes to these people to go and rebuild it. And it is either this, invest your time by showing up and physically being a part of it. That means swinging the hammer, placing the blocks, or invest your resources. And I would say that this is a lesson that we all should hold on to in our lives, that when it comes to advancing the kingdom of heaven and changing communities, it does not happen in the position of our writings. It happens in the position of where we actually invest our time and where we invest our resources. Change and transformation can absolutely come to a community We know that, right? Christians for thousands of years have been on the forefront of bringing change to community, but it has come through sacrifice of our energy and our resources. And Ezra says, listen, if you're able to go and actually be a part of physically building it, then be a part of it. And if you're not able to physically build it, then give of your resources to make sure that it's able to happen. Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin. What does that tell us? It starts with you. It starts with the heads of the households. It starts with your home and with you as the leader in your home standing up and saying, I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to be more than just somebody that, who's sitting. Like, you, you, anybody ever watched the Muppet show back in the day, right? I mean, what did the hecklers add in contribution? right? No matter what, what you had to say, what, no matter what was happening, they were always up there in the peanut gallery ready to mock and make fun of and laugh and point, right? But they did not add any constructive value in the end. They gave us something to laugh at and to point to, right? Don't be a heckler when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, right? You show up in the building thinking that, hey, look, I'm a part of the show, but the truth is you're sitting in the peanut gallery. <laughs> look at what they're doing, Show up and be a part of, yeah, thank you, Zoe, uh, and be a part of what it looks like to invest your time and your resources. 
Verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. I'm pointing out several verses here at the beginning that I think are so critical. So they were to give of their resources. And then what happened on top of that? Cyrus goes and he, remember Nebuchadnezzar carried these things off. And, and remember the, the, the story of the writing on the wall, right? Uh, because what? They go and they get some of the items and they, they come and they begin to drink out of them. And, and, and God brings judgment. And that's actually where uh, the very moment that the Mesopotamian uh, Persian army comes in and establishes a kingdom over Babylon, right? God does not forget what is God's. God has a record, and he goes on from here, and, and, and we, we find that, that there is actually a listing of these resources that were gathered together, not because it was some type of an account in Ezra uh, for our benefit. It was because God wants to make sure we understand that even down to the piece of silverware that was taken off of his table, he knows where it's at, and he will bring it back and use it for his good. Solomon writes this when he writes Ecclesiastes. He says, hey, do you know this? God establishes wealth among the wicked for one purpose, and it is to redistribute it to the righteous. Because all the wealth is God's. And so he will use the wicked as a storehouse for the purposes of redistributing it for kingdom advancement. And so they give what they can, and you know who meets the, 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 the shortfall? Who fills in the gap? God does. And he stirs the heart of Cyrus and he says, all right, this is what they've given. Now give them everything that was taken. God will make a way to see his plan come to fruition. And so God uses his resources to fill the gap. Now, Ezra chapter 2, this is a, a, a chapter that is filled with names, and you might be skip, uh, uh, tempted to skip over it, right? When we're reading through Scripture and we start seeing genealogies and the lists of names, I know it's like, oh my gosh, this is so boring. I want to skip over it. I, I want to encourage you that, that when you see those things, ask the question, why am I getting this right now? Why am I getting all of these names? Uh, a couple of things that I'll point out is that it's more than a simple list of names. It is a record of their involvement. So God sees the smallest investments. This is, this is a recording of those that showed up and did just the, the littlest amount. And this is a way for you and I to be encouraged that God is keeping a record. He knows when we are showing up, even if we aren't the star in the front and we don't feel like we're making this tremendous impact, God is keeping a record. It is a record for their inheritance. Ultimately, as they go and they are able to claim land from around there, this will be the record of their investment and therefore a record for the inheritance that will not just impact their lives, but their children's lives and their children's children's lives. Proverbs 13 says that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That there's this, there's, there's this thought process that goes into the, the, into the heart and mind of a wise person that says, I want to leave something not just for my kids, but for my grandkids. I want to see an increase in their lives. And then it is a record to verify the text. Now, no other religion's text does this. This is really remarkable. When you look at 
the scriptures. It is not just a series of stories, but the writers intentionally go and create these genealogical lists of names and places and, and all the little, little intricacies, right? Because what it does is for you and I is it allows us to connect it. We can take and drop it right into the historical record that is being assembled by secular minds. And so we can be sitting there and looking at history and what's being discovered in archaeology, and we can go, oh, I read about that in the Bible. And you don't find that in other religions. You don't find this intentional uh, mindset of connecting it to what's happening in the world around them. Now, I'll point out that if you go and read Nehemiah 7, you're going to get, because uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are working in tandem here with the building of the temple, and you're going to have a different number that is on this team that's going to go and build uh, uh, the temple. And I would say that not everyone who signs up shows up. And it's not a conflict for us because I can tell you, even in church here, we have people who sign up and don't show up. We have people who come through and say, oh my gosh, this was amazing. God is so great and I'm ready to go. Let's go. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And then you never hear from them again. They just, they're just gone, right? Uh, you want to report, um, you want to create a missing persons report. You know, it's like, no, they were really fired up. They said they were going to be there. And, and now they're not answering. I think you call that ghosting today, right? When you're talking about relationships, like, it just happens. Like people can be all fired up in the moment and filled with emotion, but they're not willing to see it through. I'll also point out that these names help us understand that teams are needed. It took a team to lower a friend into the presence of Jesus. And I want you to understand that I can't do this without you. We can't run red on Saturdays where we're trying to give clothes out to people who need them and food to people who are hungry without a team of people who help make it happen. And there's two parts to that, financially and physically. And showing up and being a smiling face and praying with people and loving on people. We can't bring change and, and impact a community without a team of people who are ready to show up and invest their time and their resources. We come into Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. This is, this is good because what this tells us is when they begin to build the temple, they begin to build the temple during what is known as the Feast of Trumpets, and it will transition directly after that into the Feast of Booths. What you may not be aware of is that right now we are actually at the Feast of Trumpets, and this last week was the Jewish New Year, 5781. Uh, they are on a, uh, the, the Jews uh, use a Jewish calendar. Uh, we use a Gregorian calendar, right? Uh, and so we don't use the same calendar. And so when you're looking at things in, a, in, in biblical text, you have to keep that in mind. They don't record their years the same way. They use a, a moon system instead of a solar system, a uh, sun system, right, for building out their calendar. And so this last week, we entered into year 5781 on the Jewish calendar. So what does that tell us? That this is the same time of year. This is the season when the work on the temple began. So that Ezra is connecting us now. He's done a good job at connecting us to what is happening in the world. And now he's allowing us to see what's happening among the Jewish people. Uh, he does this in verse 2 because as it is written in the law of Moses, the, uh, the man of God. 
they begin to do everything exactly as it was said to be done. That's important for us. It would have been really easy, right, for them to come in and create their own system. But, but Ezra wants to make sure that they begin with the Feast of Trumpets, right? They're beginning at the beginning of a new year, a new season. There is something to be excited about. We're here to praise God, and we're not going to do it our way. We're going to do it his way. And so they did not compromise, and they did not do their own thing, and they did not create a new interpretation of the Scripture. These are things I think the church can really be guilty of at a consistent pace throughout history of taking some type of instruction that God has given. And when I say interpretation, I'm not talking about uh, how, I'm talking about how we define direct words from God, right? So God says, you should not murder, right? Like most of us would go, that one's pretty simple, and I'm going to do it exactly the way that God says to do it. And you would think that that would be the case when we look at Scripture, but it's not And so Ezra wants to make sure we understand that they are going to do it exactly as the Word of God instructed them to do it. And do you know what happens when people begin to walk in obedience to God? This always happens. It brings resistance. As they begin to start a new year and celebrate the things of God and to do things the way that God has instructed them to do, resistance rises up. In chapter 4, verse 1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of uh, Ezeradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Azarus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So this is what happens. A group of people show up and they say, I'm a, I'm a believer. I, I do the same things that you do, right? Ezra makes sure that we understand something. They are their adversaries. Why were they their adversaries? They were their adversaries, according to Jewish commentators, because, yes, they made sacrifices to their God and to every other God they knew of. The compromise in their spirit was one of, we accept all of your ideas and all of your ways, and we're perfectly fine with it. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua say, you get to have no part of this. The building of a temple to God, because there is only one God. And remember that Ezra has has made this known to us in the writings that what? We're going to do it God's way. And what did God say? You'll have no other gods before me. 
There is only one true living God. This is a conversation that they have had over and over and over. And here's a group of people who want to be a part of the church, but their lifestyles do not line up with the philosophy of the church. You see, they claim to love the same God, but they discouraged and distracted the people. See, if they were in harmony and loving the same God and living for the same God, they would not have made themselves the adversaries that ultimately were trying to distract what was happening. And then they hired politicians and lobbyists. And why would I use that type of language? Well, because literally they begin to bribe the counselors. They begin to bribe the officials, right? That's the political leadership of the day. And then what do... What, what do they do? They begin to lobby for the building of the temple to be shut down. They write a letter to Cyrus. And look at here in verse 15. This is what they say. In order, they say, you need to stop this, right? In order that search, uh, so he, he says, go and search uh, through the records. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in front of old. That was why this city was laid to waste. So they say, if you'll just go back and look at the historical books, at the, the context of these people, you'll find out that they were always stirring up trouble. They were standing in opposition to kings. So is this true? Yeah, it's true. But it's not the whole story. There's an attempt right here in Ezra to manipulate history. And, and this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a theme that we see that runs throughout, uh, uh, throughout history, right? As, as empires rise, they want to attempt to rewrite aspects of history. You see, yes, it is true that they stood against the kings, but why did they stand against the kings? Because they would not, when they were walking in righteousness, worship other gods. It's the same story for Daniel. Daniel would not bow down. He would not worship other gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No, we will not bow and worship the statue. So yeah, can it be said that they were a rebellious bunch? Absolutely, you could say that they were a rebellious bunch. But who had the highest authority in their life? God had the highest authority in their life. You see, the real question was, do they truly worship God? And for those that are writing this letter and those that are fighting against the church and are at the same time saying, we believe in their God and we're, we make sacrifice, we do their God thing, right? Right? Look at us. We do those things, right? But do they truly believe in God? They do not truly believe in God. But Ezra and those that are here that are a part of this story that are saying, no, you cannot be engaged. They do believe in God. And watch the response here. Cyrus sends back, and it says in verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the efforts of this group, through their bribing, their derogatory comments, their manipulation of history, the writing of their letters to the king, it worked. 
And where they had once, in essence, had a permit to do what they were doing, their permit was revoked, and they were told, you're going to stop. You'll no longer be able to do what you are doing. Now, somewhere around 12 years passes. Some commentators will say 16 years, just to give you a perspective. So I told you uh, uh, that, that there's this period of time that is taking place. Ezra 5, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. What happened is that the word came to them that it was time to rebuild, but they did not yet have the permit. They did not yet have permission. Why does that matter? God reminds them that he is the one that gave them the command to build, and he did not say stop. And so you get this period of time where they're just 12 to 16 years. They're just kind of in limbo. They're not doing this thing, and so the temple is just not being rebuilt, and they're all just kind of doing life. And then the word of the Lord comes and says, hey, I, I never told you to stop. And that's, that strikes a chord for Zerubbabel. He's like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And he shows up and starts working and starts building a team again. And they start putting the work and the effort into building the temple. And do you think that this happened, that this word came at a time when the enemy was no longer interested in stopping them? Uh, absolutely not. In fact, much of the same leadership is in place. And another letter gets sent. Another letter gets sent, and uh, they go now to King Darius, who is in charge, and they say the same thing. If you'll go and look, you will find out this is a rebellious group. They will stand against you if they have to for their God. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Because if it comes to, to choosing between Yahweh and the other gods... When they're walking in right standing, they're going to choose Yahweh. Now, historically, we'll see that there is corruption that in infiltrates them all the time. And you'll have portions of, the, uh, of the, the church that will say, oh, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to stir things. This is what gets them into exile, right? But when they're in right standing, they will not tolerate sin. And they will not tolerate the worship of other gods or surrendering to other gods. And Ezra chapter 6 gives us a response from Darius, okay? So uh, this letter comes back from Darius, and uh, Darius tells them that he finds there to be no real reason why they can't build their temple. In fact, he is so inclined that he tells the adversaries of the Jewish people that they can use their own taxes to pay for it. Can you imagine how that must have felt, right? I mean, you've had somewhere between 12 and 16 years of pious victory walking around. Yeah, we showed them. We stopped them from doing the, this thing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do it our way, so they got stopped in their tracks. And then the king says, hey, listen, not only can they start again, but I want you to pay for it. So here's a tax on you so that you can pay for it to happen. This has got to be a tremendous victory in their hearts to know that God has not abandoned them or forgotten them. In fact, uh, uh, in this letter, he, he goes on to write really good things about Ezra. 
and about the things that he's heard of him. Ezra chapter 7, this begins the second book. So this is where we actually see not Ezra's compiling of a text, but where he begins to write out his involvement. And I'll move very quickly through this. Um, uh, And and this is uh, somewhere around 80 years later. So Ezra is not a young guy at this point. Verses 1 through 5 give us Ezra's family heritage, okay? Uh, uh, And this is important for us because what we find is that Ezra is a descendant of, uh, by 16 generations of Aaron. 16 generations. And I'll say this, don't underestimate the value of family heritage, right? Don't underestimate the value of being a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation believer. Don't underestimate the value of how God can use you because you come from a lineage of people who have raised their kids to love the Lord and serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul. And if you don't have that heritage, here's the good news. You can start it. You can be, you can be the, the one that begins that right here, right now for your family. In verse 6, it tells us that Ezra is a skilled scribe, that he is good at what he does. And then in verse 10, it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And this verse gives us a really simple pattern for what it looks like to walk in faith. And that is Learn it first, do it second, teach it third. And so many times Christians want to do these out of order. We get saved and immediately we're like, some, some people are like, I, I just want to be teaching. And they're not willing to do the, the hard work and put in the effort and the time of learning it and putting it into practice. Some just want to run out and start doing it and they don't even know what they're talking about. This is a really good opportunity for me to plug community groups and why coming together to study the Word of God and do it in a manner where you are with brothers and sisters in Christ is so important is because as believers, if we want to be teachers, if we want teachers that will shape young people to know the Lord, somebody's got to step into that role and we have got to be a part of this process. And we've got to stop invalidating ourselves. The mindset that I hear from so many people is, well, you know, I'm, I'm not that smart. I don't understand those things. I'm, I'm, I'm not the preacher. And God isn't calling every one of us to come and stand up here. But I will tell you this, you are all called to know the Word of God and to share the Word of God. And you might think, and I hope I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings here, but you might think that creating a post on Facebook where you put a Bible verse out there is a great way of sharing the gospel. But what we know about the current algorithms is that those algorithms are about making money. So do you think that they are showing those Bible verses to non-believers? That's not going to make them any money. Those Bible verses are going to be circulated around believers who are going to go, I like that. 
It's called an echo chamber. And the algorithms feed on echo chambers because it allows them to consume more of our time. Therefore, they get more advertising, which means they make more money. You don't believe that? You think, oh, that's crazy. Just go look it up. Just go and look at how the algorithms work for all of the social media sites. It is about creating these groups where people are in agreement. And it becomes really difficult unless you do the hard work to find out what another person's point of view is. And sharing the gospel is going to require you and I doing some face-to-face We're going to have to step away from the VR into the real reality. We're going to have to set up coffee with people, and we're going to have to sit down. And the only way that we're going to be able to share with them and show them the goodness of God is if we are walking it out and if we understand it. And so you can sign up for a community group online. You can join so many different, you have unlimited access to Bible studies online. Get into community and make it a part of lifestyle. If you're a parent, let me tell you, your decision to invest and not invest is modeling something for your kids. And when you exempt yourself from the need to learn, to participate, and to teach, you are telling your kids that that isn't really a priority. But I don't think that that's something that we really want to communicate to our kids. Carmen and I have this conversation all the time when there are things that take our, our energy and resources that we don't want to do, right? I mean, sometimes we're just tired, but we have the conversation, you know what? We're modeling something for our kids. And if they see us exempting out of everything and making a reason not to show up, then we are creating a model and a standard for them that unless God breaks that model in their lives will be the standard by which they will live their lives. And so Ezra gets a letter from the king directly. This is a new king, Artaxerxes. uh, And uh, in the midst of this, Artaxerxes, uh, during this 80-year period, too, I just want to point out the significance, too. This is actually when uh, the book of uh, Esther takes place. So next week when you guys come in and Kat is teaching on Esther, you're actually going to be between uh, chapter 6 of Ezra and chapter 7 of Ezra. Esther is going to be taking, and Artaxerxes, that's the long hand. Artaxerxes becomes the, 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 the king, the ruler during that time. And he's called the long hand because he's a ruthless king. You need to understand that. So when he writes a, a letter up to Ezra, right, uh, praising him for all the work that he's done, that's a big thing. So the people of the day that are reading this, they're like, Artaxerxes said this? I don't have time to read it to you. We're going to run out of time today, but go and read that, right, in Ezra chapter 7. But I, I want to point out the prayer that Ezra adds here in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts uh, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. What does he say? He says, 
I know fully who this king is, and I know the type of tyrannical leader he is, and yet somehow this guy not only writes a letter of thanks and appreciation, but he gives us resources to increase the footprint of the temple. Uh, if you go back to Ezra chapter 3, the, you have the, the older people are sitting here and they're crying. It says that they're groaning because the temple is going to be smaller than what it was, right? And they're limited by resources, but, but all of a sudden things come to a screeching halt. Now Artaxerxes is in charge, and he gives even more resources to the project so that it will be rebuilt to its full and original stature. It's pretty amazing. And Ezra says, all I can do is say, go God. Like, you are amazing. Like, you took, you took the enemy of the enemy, right? I mean, you took the worst. This guy is a, a monster. You know what's said of Artaxerxes? And I'm, I'm not, I'm, hopefully you guys are in this for a moment. Artaxerxes, his best friend was an elderly guy, and they were going to war. And he, his uh, uh, son got drafted into the army. And uh, one of Artaxerxes' best friends comes. He's an elderly man. He says, I'm going blind. I cannot take care of myself. I need my son uh, to be at home with me, helping me. And Artaxerxes sent for his son, right? Had him ripped in half and the blood strewn across the ground and had all of the armies march across the entrails while his best friend sat there weeping on the side of the road because his son was dead. Just to give you a picture, like I'm talking about a monster of a king, right? I mean, the long hand, he could care less. He came for you and he hated you. And he writes this letter saying, man, I don't know what's going on, but I want to pay for this thing to be bigger than it was. And Ezra's response is, God, you, you're amazing. Look at what you're doing. We move into Ezra chapter 8. We get another list of names. Why is that? Because a team is being built. And what is he looking for? He's looking for teachers because he understands that if you don't have teachers to raise up new leaders, you run into the same cycle that you've been running into, and that is where it all falls apart and comes to a stop. And so he has this epiphany. Hey, not only do we need a team to make this thing happen, but we need some teachers among us so that we can be teaching new generations to be engaged in the process. And then Ezra 9 the, the, the writing takes this huge shift. I'm going to close with this. Ezra comes on the scene in Jerusalem, and there's a problem. There's a problem. And here it says in verse 1, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests of the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And it lists all of these out, right? And it talks about their abominations. And it says here that um, they have not separated themselves from these other religious practices. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands and in the faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Um, real quick, note this little A if you're reading this. Uh, this is a footnote for us because it's not making some uh, comment here to the master race or something. It, it's, uh, this is just means offspring, okay? I wanted to point that out for you so you didn't think that like, oh, they were consumed with being like this master race because that feels very similar in language to modern day when we think of 
what Hitler was attempting to do and other dictators and uh, rulers in the past have tried to do. Uh, but that's not what it's communicating. But look at what it says. It says, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. What was the problem? The problem was you had a group of people who were living lifestyles that were abominations to God. God had said, and this is a a message that's even for today, not not to be unequally yoked right? Like, like the idea of entering into a marriage covenant where you are saying to become one before God and God is creator and I love God and he's my king. And, and, and if you are not in harmony with each other, you're going to have some problems. And, and I can testify to that. This is uniquely bad though, because not only is it just like, hey, I'm not a believer or, or like, yeah, I believe in God, whatever. They actively worship other gods and participate in acts that are seen as abominations. And in that list of people are, are, is, 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 a, is the groups of people who worship Baal, Marduk, Molech, and they sacrifice children to their gods, right? They engage in sexual immorality and revelry. They will go to the temple and have sex with prostitutes, right? And, and if a child is, is conceived there and someone becomes pregnant, it's no big deal. They'll just kill the baby when it's born make it another sacrifice to their God. This is the group of people now that they're marrying into. And the problem is they're, they're not even having any influence on these people. These abominations, this way of living continues, right? And so what was the sin? It was, the sin was bound up in the consequences of disobedience. There's a lot of sin inside of this. So they're all excited about rebuilding the temple. Ezra shows up and he's like, man, man, the king, he's going to fund this thing. This project's been going on for far too long. And they show, he shows up and he finds out that, that the households are not households that represent the way that God has asked them to live. Instead, they are households now where they have members of their family engaging in occult practices. And so verses 5 through 15 show us Ezra embracing the guilt of the sin. And I want to just point something out, because this is important, I think, for us to to, to understand, is he is not embracing the sin of a previous generation. He's embracing the sin that's happening right here, right now. And he feels the guilt of what it looks like to be a child of God who is walking, who is a part of a group of people that are walking out the exact same lifestyles that they were walking out before exile. It's 150 plus years later. Have we not learned anything, right? I mean, can, can we not look at the book and go, these were the same things they were doing before exile and the consequences, and yet we're just going to keep doing it? I mean, have you ever met anybody who just thought that they were exempt or it really wasn't that big of a deal and that God's instruction was, eh, it's kind of more of a suggestion? I would say you probably have. You might even have been guilty of that at some point in your life. Even right here, right now, you could be. I know I have been. And what's Ezra's response? He rips his garments and he pulls hair out of his head, right? I mean, he is upset and he's grieving. In verse 8, he says this, and this is beautiful, but now for a brief moment, 
favor has been shown by the Lord our God. How could he say that in the midst of all this grieving? Because he understands that the favor of God is in the opportunity to reconcile sin. It is in the opportunity to repent. Do you know that the favor of God is on your life right here today if you are walking in sin because you have the opportunity to repent and be made right and holy in his presence? Paul says that that is why God is so amazing. It's not in that there's no God because he didn't strike me dead with lightning. It's that he is slow to wrath. The favor of God on the life of his children is that he will be slow to bring the exile. In fact, it was 490 years before the first exile took place of disobedience. And so God gives us the opportunity. And look at what he says here in verse 10. And now our Oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. We're doing the exact same thing that we've always done. And I can't make right what they did, but, but here I can, I can be a part of fixing this right here, right now. We can be different. And this is such a powerful word, I think, for us. For you and I, we can, we can be different we can, we can, you and I can have a relationship with God that is unique. We can see restoration in the city of Savannah and the outlying areas, even if the rest of the world does not. The reconciliation of the world around us begins with the reconciliation of ourselves to God. If we want to see true justice and reform and, 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 and change in the world around us, it begins in our relationship with God. And then it begins inside of this team coming and weeping and mourning together for the reconcil reconciliation to God and the, and the forgiveness of sin. And then what do we do? Together we are able to see the temple rebuilt. And what would that look like for us today? Well, since we are the temple, that means that every one of our brothers and sisters out there right now that need to know Jesus, they are a temple. And we can see the temple rebuilt in their lives by being a part of that. This is what led to their exile. And in verse 13, it says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. He says, we deserve much worse, and this is the remnant. So if you're a Christian and you're looking around and you're going, man, the, man, Christianity is a mess right now. That's exactly what Ezra was seeing. And his, his, his thing was, man, thank you for this remnant, God. Thank you for this bit that is still here. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Listen, the requirement is this. We have to change the way that we think and the way that we walk this out. And this is, this is my very end here, Ezra 10, the final chapter. The people repent of their sin. The people commit to leave. Here's what I don't want to tell you today. Chapter 10, these families were divided. 
men and women made decisions and said, I cannot live in this home where this type of idolatry and pagan worship is happening. And in chapter 10, a group of people said, we won't live this way anymore. And they separated their families. In the New Testament, the scripture says that if you are married to an unbeliever, right? The scripture says that, that you should try to reconcile that, right? The hope is that they would become a believer. And we're not talking about simply a non-believer in the sense of just somebody who's like, I don't care, okay? When we're looking at this Ezra 10, 9 and 10 section, we're talking about a group of people who actively are engaged in pagan acts. Child sacrifice, that there would have been an unfaithfulness in the home and the way that they viewed sexuality, and there was not a repentance. Can I tell you too, we do see individuals in scenarios like this repent and change their lives. Ruth is a great example of this. She grew up in a pagan land. She met uh, uh, Naomi, and she became a believer. She went back to Bethlehem. She followed the ways of God, and she was redeemed by Boaz. And one of the, the, the tribes that's mentioned here, the people of Moab, she's a, she's a Moabitess. She's a woman from Moab, and she becomes the grandmother of David, the king of Israel. She's in direct lineage to Jesus. That matters for the narrative because God will redeem and save any who will choose. And in order for the temple to be rebuilt, there ultimately had to be a separation that took place here. And I will tell you this, if that feels hard inside of you, then before it gets to that place in your life, especially if you are not married, remember this, that stepping out of compromise is never easy. If you ultimately allow compromise to slip into your life, getting out of it, it's going to be painful, it's going to be messy, it's going to, have, it's going to create tension. Let's stand to our feet as we close. Two questions. Man, I have such a hard time getting this done quickly. What areas of compromise are you complacent in this week? Ask yourself that question. Where am, I, where am I complacent in compromise? Areas where I know God has said, you know what, this is not the way that a believer acts, but yet I continue to compromise. And then a second question, that is not it. I'm not sure what happened. Ta-da! Is what, what influence does the word have in your life? What influence does the word have in your life? You won't be able to establish if there is compromise in your life if you can't establish the role of the Word of God in your life. Because if the Word of God is merely a huge collection of fortune cookies, right, then you're going to kind of go, oh, that's interesting and good today, but it's not authoritative today. You see, if you think that it's a book about God, you're going to take what you want from it. But if you believe that it's a book from God, then you're going to allow it to steer you out of compromise and into holiness. So right now, as we close, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. 
Lord, we just want to come to you today, and we want to say thank you. Uh, Father, in the, in the midst of our world where there just seems to be so much division and anxiety and hostility, there's a cry that we keep hearing rising above everything for love There seems to be a hope that things can be restored among brothers and sisters. And Lord, I'm thankful that you have positioned us here in this place and that you have given us enough time and enough resources that we can be a part of transformation. Father, I pray that our hearts would be awakened to a drive to share the gospel, to be a part of building the church, to be a part of making you famous, seeing families and friends restored. Speak into our lives and use us. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Before you leave, I want to say this. If you need prayer, we have people in the back that will pray with you. They'll, they'll be wearing their masks. If you're uncomfortable with that and you just, uh, you're not comfortable with somebody laying hands on you right now, but you would like to make a prayer known, you can write that down. There's prayer cards back there. We will make it a matter of prayer. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in the word. Uh, this next week when we jump into Esther, it's a short book. It would be fantastic for you to read through it and be familiar with it before Kat gets up to speak. And then after that, we're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. So if you want to be reading ahead, I would love to challenge you to be doing that. I love you guys. Make it a great week. Go change your world.